Paul has now come out of this uh, wonderful chapter in chapter 7 that is wrestling through and dealing with the repentance of the Corinthians. He, he has a confidence that their heart has been tenderized and has been softened. Uh, and so he now directs his attention to an outworking of that, some instruction, some admonition, two chapters devoted to a return uh, of a concept he raised at the end of 1 Corinthians, and that was an offering. And Paul had wanted the church in Corinth, which was an incredibly wealthy church overall. Uh, they were at this trade uh, spot. You have the, the Corinthian isthmus that went through. And so lots and lots of money flowed through Corinth. And he had wanted the church to set aside some money every single week, particularly to give to the Jews, uh, the Jewish Christians in Judea. The persecution was severe in Judea. Uh, the, it, was, it was like if you poured a little water on your table and you slam your fist down, it just scatters everywhere the diaspora the, the the scattering of the jewish christians is beginning to happen because of the severe hammer of persecution upon them the religious leaders and the romans are beginning to work together find common ground uh, to chase after these people they're killing people and so you you have orphans now in the church because mom and dad have been killed by the romans and the jewish leaders you have people that have been run out of their homes their businesses have been destroyed because they now follow this, in their minds, false prophet. We understand they are now followers of Jesus. The church is large. It's a few thousand people there in Jerusalem. Uh, you have people that had traveled there for Pentecost and uh, had stayed and had gotten saved on the day of Pentecost as a result of the preaching of Peter. And they decided, oh, I don't want to go back home. And so you have displaced people. You have strangers. You have foreigners. You, you have visitors that never go back. And you have orphans and you have widows and all these people are in danger. They don't have enough food to go around. They don't have enough clothing for everyone. And Paul is burdened, uh, particularly burdened both as an apostle and as one who previously participated in the persecution of the church. And so he wanted the Corinthian church to use their wealth to collect an offering over a period of time uh, so that he could take those monies back to Judea and give to the, to the Christians that were there. Unfortunately, as a result of their conflict with Paul, they had stopped giving. Uh, they didn't trust him. They're angry. Uh, they think Paul's in it for himself, and they decide we're going to withhold this money. Paul understands that their failure here, their fainting, they're growing weary in this well-doing, is a direct reflection of their lack of love for God and others. And so now Paul's hopeful. He's hopeful that coming out of chapter 7 with this repentant heart and a desire to be restored in relationship with Paul, that they'll once again pick up this mantle to be generous to these other believers. That's what chapters 8 and 9 are all about. He takes two chapters to unpack this. There's a complexity to talking about generosity and money, and uh, all too often I think these verses are just used as proof texts. Uh, and so we're given a, just a wonderful opportunity as a church to work through them contextually, and try to understand them in a better way. And so what I want to do is I want to read through these first uh, seven verses. And then we're going to need to really focus on those in need. Because Paul's going to make a series of arguments all along the way. And you'll see this by the time we get to the end of chapter 9. That he keeps building on his, not shocking with Paul. He keeps building on his argumentation. But he's going to start here with an illustration of another church. Who is giving to this need. And so it has to do with the way we think about needy people. We'll never... Be generous the way God has called us to be generous until we live in the reality of what it's like to be needy. 
And so he starts with a group of people that knew exactly what that was like, the Macedonians. Chapter 8, 2 Corinthians, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Uh, those are some confrontational words to write to a rich church that had stopped giving. But why give? Why be so generous to these needy people? And I want you to understand you have to enter into the world of the needy. All of us, as we go through life, we're going to face various trials. And, and so let's start with the trials of someone who's in this level of need. Suddenly, as a believer, you experience what we might call theological cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is when my experience doesn't match what I've been told or taught. Well, theological cognitive dissonance is very simply when I've been told something about God and then that doesn't seem to match my experience. And so think of yourself as a Judean Christian. Suddenly you've been told things like the psalmist says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken of their children begging for bread. And you've got people in your church literally begging for bread. Or you remember Jesus saying that, that he clothes the flowers of the field, he'll clothe you also, and you can't figure out where to get the next stitch of clothing. And, and he said that, that God has said that he'll shelter you and he'll look after you and suddenly you don't have homes. And Jesus said, don't worry about adding an inch to your height or the hair on your head, which really point to don't worry about your vigor and your vitality. And yet they feel weak and infirm. And they're running into this theological cognitive dissonance and, and it really begins to play down into the lie that we are all tempted to believe when we are experiencing those kinds of trials and difficulties. And, and you could summarize it in a number of ways. You could say, we've started asking the question, where is God? We start asking things like, does he really love me? Um, we, we look at others who aren't suffering in the same needy way. Then we say, why does he love them more? We certainly begin, we could boil it down this way, to ask, where is the kindness of God? I mean, even when we are lost and we see someone hurting we are prone to want to meet a need uh, we we don't want to see people starving we don't want to see people going around naked or without shelter or homeless we want to say well where is god's kindness i'm now his child where is he and why is he not in my world and when this begins to happen in our neediness and in our difficulty and particularly in our deprivation are going without we question the grace of god this kindness that he's supposed to have and so our takeaway this morning and really it says paul begins to set the stage it's this reality generosity when one believer is generous to another needy believer 
Paul is going to argue is it puts God's grace on display to the hurting. In other words, while God can miraculously do, obviously, whatever he wants to do, right? Uh, you, could, you, could, you could not have enough food uh, in the pantry to make dinner. Uh, you think of George Mueller with his orphans in England and his orphanage one morning gathered all the orphans together. They had no food for breakfast. George Mueller sat them down and he prayed with them and they thanked God for breakfast. And when he was finished praying, they heard a knock on the door. When they went to answer the door, a bread truck had broken down outside of the orphanage. And the guy said, there's no point. Yes, you can have all the bread because by the time my truck gets fixed, then there's not going to be any way to deliver it anymore. It'll be beyond what people are going to want to sell. So here you go. Yes, can God miraculously meet our needs? Absolutely. But Paul is making the argument that when the Bible tells us things like God owns a cattle on a thousand hills, what he means largely by that is my bank account and yours. When God talks about the fact that he owns, he owns everything, and as Christians, we are ones who have ascribed to the reality, you own me. And because you own me, you own all my stuff. And Paul is telling us that God intends to put his grace and his kindness that meets the needs of the needy through us. And that it's a direct representation of loving God and loving your neighbor. That's why Jesus makes the case, how will men know that you're my disciples? By the love you have for one another. And so generosity actually is what puts God's grace on display to the hurting. Now here's the problem. Grace is invisible. <laughs> grace grace is, is, how do you picture grace? How do you, how do you make grace shown? You know, as Christians, we believe in grace. We define grace. You know, it's God's unmerited or undeserved favor or blessing. We talk about grace. We ask for grace. We pray for grace. We want more grace. Uh, we know that humility is necessary to receive grace from the book of James. But in large part, we have a really hard time wrapping our minds around it. What is grace? And so we even give that definition, undeserved favor of God. But that feels a lot more like an attitude of God toward us, God's gracious toward us, than it does actually something that's tangible. And all of that gets ramped up when you're hurting. I need God's grace. I need his undeserved kindness. But we start thinking of it in very physical ways. And when those physical ways are absent, it feels like also his grace is absent towards me. It feels like I'm going without. Where is the kindness and love of God when you're suffering? How is that kind? And where is his kindness? Has he somehow removed his kindness from you when you are suffering, when you are hurting? Where is the generosity of God when you are abandoned, when you are neglected, when you are rejected, or you're going without? In those moments, we are blinded to the kindness of God. We feel blind, and there's real danger when a Christian feels blinded to the kindness of God. Now, I want to I help you even understand a little bit more. And I'm saying that I think that this is where a real struggle is because every person in this room is wealthier than over 95% of the rest of the world every person in this room and if we were to look at the bible we are a lot more and i'm not saying it because i think okay how do i phrase this so it comes out clearly <laughs> our spot here in this text is a lot more 
financially and materially with the Corinthians than the Macedonians. I'm not saying that's where you personally are at spiritually. But we have to live in the reality of our wealthiness and ask ourselves the tough questions. That's the only way to approach this text. We cannot approach this text and say, well, I am the Macedonian. Just just subjectively, no, we're not. And so we would be prone to the same kinds of errors. And so it's so important that we understand what it's like when you're needy, when you're blind, and you're in this moment that you can't seem to see. And so I think this illustration will help of a different blind man. And so I walk into the room and I, I find a bed. And then to the left of the bed, I feel along and I find this uh, nightstand, which is where I expect the phone to be. Mm-hmm. And so I feel, feel up the nightstand and it's there, but fine. But I reach across the bed to look up and find the other nightstand. And I feel that one. And it's like, oh, that's where you need to open it. It's, it's a bit odd. stick with the assume. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and I even thought, well, maybe it's like a super fancy hotel and maybe there's a phone in the bathroom. And I go in there and like, there's nothing. So I circled the room two more times this way, wiping it down. And I checked the coffee table again. I checked the desk again. And I just figured, forget it. I'll just go to bed. Try again tomorrow. So I get up to bed, start the call of life. Of course, as a believer, there's no phone, but this is kind of part of the course. 
and you know to abide by. And so we talk, and then I hang up the phone, and I go get back into bed, and there's now a wall there. A wall. Where the bitch is being now a wall. He feels to the sofa, the sofa is right where it should be. The wall behind the sofa is in place. He goes along the sofa again, he inches towards where the bed should be, and yet, it still seems to be a wall. And I'm totally disoriented at this point. Like, it's, it's funny and it's also sort of terrifying because I, I know the bed was there and now there's a wall and I keep touching the wall thinking maybe this time it'll go away. And I, I go to the left and there's another wall on the left. And I'm a grown man and I'm locked in a hotel room. So what's your next move? What do you do? I ended up like doing the Marcel Marceau thing. I started wiping the walls, feeling my way along the edges, and it wraps back around until I find the bed is actually behind me. He's in a part of the room, an alcove that he didn't know existed the night before. So here's what the room actually looked like. There are two coffee tables and two sofas on the left and the right side of the bed. The night before, when he Marcel Marceau his way around the walls, he got around three walls and he got to the fourth wall and didn't actually touch it all the way along to the point where it met another wall. No, instead he stopped halfway. Basically, he kind of saw the bed behind him and he just assumed like, okay, I guess that the wall is coming and he just assumed that the wall continued for another eight feet or so, uh, but it did not continue at all. Uh, there was this alcove. And this is the problem. When you're blind, you just can't assume anything. And the problem is you get a picture in your mind Two weeks before our interview, he got locked in, in another hotel room in Los Angeles. He couldn't find the door to get out. Uh, he said that during the decade that he slowly went blind. It took me a long time to come to understand that blindness actually wasn't the main problem. The main problem was a barrier. Um, but, you know, I, I had to sort of give myself over to the slapstick of things. To state the audience, sometimes it is just a lot easier to see something. Here's things up. Now that's funny, until you're a Christian who's enraptured by the grace of God and overwhelmed by his kindness, and then suddenly neediness arrives, and it seems like somebody shut the lights off. And two key things he said there about what the, it's like, the experience of blindness, resonated with me as I've thought about my own seasons of neediness and working with other Christians who are needy. One is you get a picture in your head and you're trapped in it. You're trapped in it. You can't see. And two, the biggest problem is not the blindness of it, it's the shame of it. And so this is what I want you to understand that Paul is telling the Corinthians. When a Christian is needy, we are being invited to enter their world and turn the lights on. And so to withhold that is to condemn them. It's to trap them. It's to be willing to let them be terrified because they can't seem to see any longer what they once held so dear. And so that's what we want to understand about this issue of generosity and a generous ministry of grace. And so let's, let's unpack the text that way. First of all, 
Let's think about the grace of God. Look back at your text. He says it this way. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, now grace is the undeserved favor of God. That's, that's what it is. Um, but I want you to understand this. Grace is actually intended to be the visible expression of the character of God. It's, it's like this, God, it's like when you think of love, for example, you, you think, how do I see love? Love is this intangible thing. The Greeks have five words for love. We've got four of them in the Bible. We talk about love and what is love. But, but how do you picture love? How do you make love visible? So Gary Chapman, right, he has the five love languages. And so he's, he says that we would see love in, primarily in five different ways through like acts of service or gifts. Uh, physical uh, affection, words of affirmation, or spending quality time. That's love made visible. Maybe you've seen those photos of the grooms standing there waiting for their bride to come down, or the first time they see the bride, and then they snap this photo, and the guys are like in tears or excited. And it's like love made visible. The grace is kindness seen. Grace is what Paul is saying Acts of grace, ministry of grace is a thing. It's not just a feeling. It's not a mystical sense. It's an actual tangible reality. It is this invisible quality made physical reality. The unconditional kindness of God is real, and yet how do we see it? The word we use, Christian ease, theology, the word we use to describe the visible expressions of God's kindness, here's the word, grace. Now, we use grace even, we attach it in other ways, and so maybe this will help us even a little bit more. We talk about things like common grace. Well, what is common grace? Well, that is visible or physical expressions, tangible realities of God's kindness that everyone commonly experiences. Uh, The fact that you can breathe, right? It's not linked to your spiritual state, common grace. Breathing, thinking, reasoning living Um, god works through uh, lost or believers with medical advancement and scientific research technology the order of our world all of these are common grace my wife and i stood uh, when she was in the hospital the other week we would take walks uh in the evening we walked out one evening uh, in the new part of the hospital lexington medical center there's uh, a hallway and it connects the north tower and the east tower uh, and they're all glass and so we'd walk there and it was vacant it, one of the blessings of COVID is like there's nobody else there and so uh, we're out there and we're standing there, we're looking through these glass this huge glass wall at the city of columbia now i've seen some beautiful skylines chicago um uh, uh new york city for sure hong kong is probably the, the most beautiful skyline i've ever seen but standing there just watching the sparking lights even frankly the city of columbia skyline and my wife said that she said that's just beautiful that's common grace Because people have structured and they've built and they've formatted and organized. That's common grace. Those are visible manifestations of God's kindness, tangible expressions that everyone experiences, whether you're saved or not. Common grace. We use grace other ways. We talk about means of grace. Means of grace. When we talk about means of grace, we are saying these are means that God uses to express his kindness specifically in the life of a believer. And so we say these are ways in which your heart is knitted closer to, to God. And so means of grace are things like prayer. And so this is a physical, tangible expression of experiencing God's kindness because you're reminded you get to talk to the Heavenly Father. You're not just uh, some wandering prisoner any longer. You're a child, a son and daughter that has been brought into the family. 
or means of grace, sitting in corporate worship, hearing the proclamation of the word, singing with other believers, receiving communion, experiencing baptism. These are common grace, reading your Bible, means, physical means that God uses to express his kindness to us. So we have common grace, we have means of grace. We understand that some people receive more grace than others. Your pride and my pride actually hinders God's grace. James 4, 6, God says, I oppose the proud. They give grace to the humble. You tend to experience grace in a new and vital and deeper way through humility. Grace is the active expression of the kind character of God. So when he says here, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, Paul is beginning this argument that's going to build and lead and build and lead. Grace is actually going to show up ten times in these next two chapters. You can see it in just the several times in these first verses. Now some of them, unless you're looking at original languages, you're going to miss some of it. So the word favor there is actually charis, it's grace, that shows up in verse 4. And then you see it all through the rest of the chapter, so ten times. The, the theme of chapter 8 and 9, ironically, is not as much generosity as it is that generosity is how you're showing grace. Generosity is grace made real. Um, and so he centers on grace, so understanding grace here is critical to us. And so if we read verse 1, though, again, as I'm trying to reframe maybe or reinforce a definition to you that grace is God's kindness put on display. It says undeserved kindness put on display. Now, normally as Christians, we read verse 1, what do we think? We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. I think most Christians read that and they think he means salvation. I think most Christians read grace there, and that's just how they skim through it as you're reading through the Bible. We want you to know, brothers, about the salvation that God has given to the churches of Macedonia. That's not at all how he means this here. Now, we think that because salvation is by God's grace. But Paul is saying that they've received a ministry of grace. What Paul is telling us is that God has given and shown his character of kindness to the Macedonians, and he has invited them in to his kindness so that they will show it to others. He's not using grace in this ethereal, um, just definition, unconditional favor of God. He's using it in a very specific way that it's a real ministry that is happening. You can actually say that so you're not just believing what I say, but you can see it in the flow of text. He proves it. What does he mean by this grace? Verse 2. He goes right after their giving. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. This, this grace is the actual generosity. You can see that more if you skip down to the end of this section that we're looking at this morning with how he uses it towards the Corinthians themselves. Verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and our love for you, see that you excel in this what? This act of grace also. Paul is saying that it's God's grace, it's his kindness, to give us opportunities to minister to the needs of others as a ministry of grace. It's God's kindness then to motivate us, to enable us, to prompt us, or to convict us to show God's kindness to the hurting. Now, I think that's really important 
because looking at needy people is really uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable. Um, and just so you understand that, when you, if you're driving and you see a homeless person or someone claiming to be homeless, there's, there's plenty of homeless beggars. That's the reality. But there's also plenty of people that are faking it. Is there a part of you that doesn't want to make eye contact? That doesn't want to look upon their neediness? Is there a part of you that at times is uncomfortable with the reality of um, whether that was that photo from years ago of the man in the Sudan, the photographer, and it wrecked his life, and he took a picture of a Sudanese child crouched over, maybe some of you have seen it, and the child is gaunt and clearly starving. You can see their ribs, you can see their spine, and there are literally vultures behind them waiting to consume the child when he dies. Does that make you uncomfortable to look upon neediness? Does it make you uncomfortable to consider the refugees fleeing from Afghanistan, uh, even over the last several years, drowning, trying to get there, or even people fleeing Cuba, drowning to try to get here. The reality is neediness always makes us uncomfortable. And so here's what Paul's saying. It's actually God being kind to us when he opens our eyes to neediness, and instead of us turning from it, we push into it. That's grace. And so the ministry that he's called them to do is his grace ministry. It's to put his kindness on display. But what is this specific ministry that the Macedonians are doing? Well, first of all, I just want to point out that Paul is amazed at this development. <laughs> he is shocked that the Macedonians want to give, verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. He's amazed because apparently Paul had not asked these churches to participate in the offering. He had asked the Corinthian church but not the Macedonian churches, and primarily those would have been Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Well, why not? Because they were experiencing severe persecution themselves. In fact, historically, you could make the argument that the Thessalonican church was more persecuted even than the Jerusalem church. And so these people are losing their homes. Uh, we have accounts and acts of people in the Macedonian churches being beaten and imprisoned falsely, run out of town, threatened, their lives threatened, eventually they will experience martyrdom as well. And so the last thing you do is appeal to poor people to give to poor people. He uses uh, wild language here. He says they're in a severe test of affliction. Paul is not using uh, light words here, and Paul is not prone to exaggeration and certainly is no liar. So for him to say they have a severe test of affliction, that is the truth. And then he uses these, these, these extreme words, right? Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity. We know from the, the Gospels when Jesus once one time sees this widow giving two mites. In the Gospel accounts, they would go and they would bring offerings to the temple. And the way it was structured outside the temple is they, they had these huge brass horns that flowed down. And that's where you would collect the, the money, the offerings. And so you can imagine what happens if you took a handful of coins and threw it into a brass long horn you hear everybody hears the rattling right and it was intended because they understood in in the best case of scenario they understood that giving offerings to god or to the temple was an act of worship and so it should be vocal 
unfortunately, we clearly understand you have people now doing things to make a show of it. And so for this widow to take two mites and drop two little coins, ting, and that's it. And Jesus commends her generosity. So when we read this, we ought not read this to think that then the amount that they're giving is much larger than what the Corinthians could give. But rather per capita of what they're able to give. The percentage of their livelihood that they're giving is astounding to Paul. These people who are already impoverished are going to go without so that they can meet the needs of others. These hurting, poor Christians want to minister grace to other hurting, poor Christians. This would have been so convicting to the Corinthians. I mean, I don't know how you get around that. Stunning that that would be their response. And so, first of all, grace ministry displays Jesus' love. Grace is putting God's kindness on display, and the first thing it goes after, shouting, is that Jesus loves you. Because we understand the ministry we do is intended to point to Christ. You can see it in the the opposites that he uses. In a severe test of affliction, abundance of joy, extreme poverty, overflow in the wealth of generosity, give according to their means and beyond their means, begging us for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. How does Jesus describe his own ministry toward you and I? He says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. There is no greater visible sign of the unconditional kindness of God than the incarnation of Jesus in his laying down of his life for you and I. Paul actually is going to point this out in ministry terms later in verse 9, which we'll look at next week. But if you look down in your Bibles, verse 9, he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He's not talking about monetary wealth there. He's talking about spiritual wealth. We are spiritual beggars. Jesus becomes a spiritual beggar. He leaves being prince, son, position, royalty, power. Leaves that to come and be born in a manger, live as a human, uh, fully God, truly God, truly man, his whole life, so that you and I can be rescued out of our spiritual impoverishment impoverishment, and be rich. The Macedonians are imaging Jesus to the Judeans. They're willing to set aside all that they have to minister needs to others. Now, the reality is the Macedonians have never met them and most likely never will meet any of these Judeans. They don't know them. They're not friends with them. They're not close to them. Just like when Jesus came, he came to sinners. He came to people who were opposed even to him. He came to people who were his enemies and he left all to showcase his love. And this is a sign of the Father's love, right? There's no greater love than this that a man would lay down his life for another. But God proved his love toward us, and while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is why he says, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, by the love you have for one another. The Macedonian ministry of grace is not screaming as much their kindness, it's screaming the love of Jesus for others. 
the Macedonians. Jesus comes willingly. He says, I lay down my own life. The Macedonians beg earnestly to be able to have this privilege. The Macedonians have not been motivated by Paul. They have not been brought to this because of compulsion or coercion. They are doing this because God has been at work in them. They are compelled by love. And they beg and they sacrifice deeply to care for the hurting. Why would anyone do this? Why would you already open your cabinets and see hardly any food, if no food there, and take some of your your earned income, not your excess, but what you need to feed yourself? What you need to clothe yourself and look at it and say, I can trim back even more. And give to people you don't even know. Without question, what the Macedonians are saying is your need is greater than my need. That's love. That's love. That's affection. It's heavenly love. It's agape love. Grace ministry displays Jesus' love. Grace ministry also displays Jesus' power to change us. Grace changes us. We are saved by grace through faith. And it is then at work in our lives continuously every day to conform you and I to the image of Jesus Christ. One of the things that it changes is our perspective. In Hebrews chapter 12, it's talking about Jesus going to the cross. And we know that Jesus experienced severe agony in the garden. He prayed to the Father, um, if, if all possible, take this cup of your wrath from me. But not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is denied in, in, uh, in the courtyard. Jesus is horrifically abused. Jesus uh, sweats great drops of blood when he's praying about it in the garden. We know that Jesus suffers extensively for our sinfulness. And yet Hebrews 12 tells us, for the joy that was set before him. What joy? The joy of putting the glory and love of God on display by rescuing lost people. What is the Macedonians' response to this? Verse 2, their abundance of joy. These people did not come begrudgingly to give and meet a need. They came with joy. Grace changes our perspective. Paul later in his writing says that he has learned, whether he has a lot or he has very little, to be content. Grace changed Paul's perspective so his contentment and his satisfaction wasn't about more stuff or less stuff. It was found in Christ alone. Paul says that he rejoices in the trials that he experiences in life. In Romans, why? Because it helps to conform him to the image of Jesus Christ. Paul says that the thorn in his flesh helps to keep him humble. Grace changes the way we view things. Look at the power of Jesus on display in the lives of the Macedonians. These people are begging to give, not out of their wealth, but out of their poverty. Begging. They're joyful in serious affliction because there's ministry that they get to do and they get to participate in. We could try to quantify this by saying studies show that poorer people are more generous per capita than the wealthy. It's ironic, I I spent a fair amount of time researching and and reading research, sociological research this week. Is that true or is it not true? Do poor people tend to give more per capita generously than wealthy people? And it's true. 
Uh, one of the clearer studies is they brought a group of people, and they've repeated this study a number of times. It keeps coming out. They, they research beforehand. They have a group of people um, that they know where their wealth and poverty level is. And so they bring people that are uh, midline. They people bring people in that are very wealthy, and they bring people in that are very, very, very poor. They bring them in, and they give them all a certain amount of money. And it's just a gift. This is yours. You can have it. We do want to also tell you there is a need, and there's some other people in this study that are going to receive no money, and they're going to be without. And so we just want to give you the opportunity to give or not give. No judgment. Nobody's going to know. It's anonymous. And every time they repeat this study, impoverished people give far more than wealthy people. Now, we can think of it sociologically, and people try to wrap their mind around it. I think the Bible points us to the truth that when we've hurt, God enables us to have a heart and want to help the hurting. And so maybe there's a part of it that's this. Maybe there's a part of this for the Macedonians that's a direct fulfillment of Paul saying that we minister to others with the same grace that we've received. We intuitively know what it's like to go without. And so we want to help those that are going without. Maybe that plays a role, and and I'm convinced to some degree it does, and so I have to be honest about it, but I also have to be honest this way. That's not what Paul emphasizes. Paul doesn't say the Macedonians are giving more than you Corinthians because, because they know what it's like to hurt. He's saying they're giving a lot and they're being very generous per capita with what they have. Why? Because of the grace of God that's been given to them. He points this to a work of God in them. In other words, he's pointing to this truth. That when you're saved and you've experienced God's love and His grace, it drives you to want to minister to others. It's not just that Jesus has laid down His love for us or laid down His life for us in love. 1 John 3, 16-18 By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. But then that extends. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, and look how He immediately connects that love. If anyone has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, when we start thinking of the totality of the New Testament, we have that in 1 John, where he's clearly linking love with tangible generosity, right? It's kind of an unmistakable reality. When he says, I want you to lay down your life for one another, it must include, it must include material generosity to the needy. It must. But it's not just there. We have it here in Corinthians. He's dealing with it. There's every indication, clearly, that at least the Macedonians are aware of it. And there's the instruction of James. When faith and works and this concept that if you have genuine faith, it must come out and works. And guess where he ties it in an application? caring for the needy and the hurting. I wish they could do a sociological test. Are true Christians the most generous? I don't know. But I know according to the New Testament, if they were to run that test, we should be. As an expression of our faith. And Paul knows, and it's very clear that the early church was struggling with this. We would be crazy if we didn't think 
that the church today does not struggle with this. And so Paul sees that this is an act of grace. It displays the power of Jesus to change people. It makes selfish people generous. Now, not only does it do that, we need to understand that it's a part of our sanctification that's going on. We understand that because Paul doesn't directly link the Corinthians' failure to be generous with their saved state, right? He doesn't say, you stopped giving the offering, I don't even think you know Jesus anymore. He views it as part of instruction for them. And that tells us then that you and I need to be taught by the Spirit to be generous. In other words, as we mature in our walk, we should be increasingly filled with this ministry of grace to be generous to the needing and the hurting. And so then what is this generosity doing? Well, I've been making the argument throughout the sermon that it's all to put God's grace on display. Now, there's two chapters here, and I know some of you already have lots of questions. How is this voluntary? That's what Paul says here about the Macedonians. He says they begged him for the privilege. How is this voluntary if Paul is calling the Corinthians to do it also? How is it voluntary if your pastor's actually, one of your pastors actually standing here preaching to you about being generous? Paul's actually going to take several verses to walk through that as we study through the next few chapters over the next several weeks. What about them giving beyond their excess to the point of hurting? Is that really what God intends for us to do? Um, the, the Judeans are really poor, and so the Macedonians. So he wants the Macedonians to give the Judeans, so the Macedonians are now poor. So then I guess the Judeans are going to give back to the Macedonians till they're poor. And he wants the Corinthians, who are way up here, to give tons to the Judeans till they're poor. And is that what he means? I know some of you are thinking that practically. He actually will address that issue. That's why it takes two chapters. He will answer that question. What about meeting their own needs? What about the Bible saying if any man doesn't take care of his own household, he's worse than the heathen and infidel? What about the reality that, that all of us have limited means? Like, like there is a limit to how generous you can be. What about the percentages? Some of you may be asking, well, like, how much does God want me to, to generously give to the needy? And, and so you may have questions that way. He takes two chapters, folks. So why am I only dealing with the first seven verses? Because it's where Paul starts and because we need to really understand what it's like to be needy. And before we can ever have a heart of grace ministry, we have to live in the reality of bumping around in a pitch black room trying to get our bearings because we thought God was kind and then we got this diagnosis or we thought God was kind then I got this bill I don't know how I'm going to pay and I thought God was kind and then I had this relational struggle that I can't seem to rectify and I thought God was kind but wasn't sure how I'm going to meet my kids needs and I thought God was kind but I can't see it If you've ever been in those kinds of trials, you know this reality. It is mentally and spiritually exhausting to try to keep preaching truth to yourself, and it just seems invisible. And so how do we fight through that? These, these people are supposed to be the true Jews in Judea. <laughs> They're supposed to be in the promised land, and here people are running them out of Jerusalem. They have more mouths than they can feed. They have 
widows to care for, orphans from martyred parents. They've lost homes, businesses, and lands. How can they get their bearings? And so we come to verse 7. As Paul directs his attention to the Corinthians, he says something interesting here. He lists spiritual gifts. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, and in knowledge. Now, um, Paul is crafty. Right? This, and we understand this is the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul, but Paul is crafty because he goes after spiritual gifts that they really prized. Uh, incredible faith, speech, and by speech he's going after every kind of speaking gift. And so for them it's not just teaching. They didn't prize teaching. They prized tongues and prophecy because that showed that God was really on your side. And in knowledge, knowing and understanding all these things, it's interesting he links this ministry of grace, this act of grace, to spiritual gifts of grace. There are largely two categories of spiritual gifts, or two words used to describe spiritual gifts in the New Testament. And some of you have been in adult Sunday school class. Darren's actually teaching on this. Uh, that was God's kindness that it ties in so well. The two words that are used are pneumatikos and charismatikos. Pneumatikos is spirit gifts. That's literally what it means. And so it emphasizes, when you study on spiritual gifts in Romans and Corinthians, it emphasizes that gifts come from the Spirit in you, the Holy Spirit in you, gifting you this, so that when you use your spiritual gift, you are actually putting God on display. That's what happens. It's crazy. It's amazing. It's weird. Probably the easiest way to see that is when someone comes and ministers mercy to you, or when someone comes and serves you. As a believer, you intuitively know in that moment Jesus just showed up because you're using their spiritual gift to minister to you. It's God's Spirit on fire inside of a believer, pneumatikos. But the other word is charismatikos. Guess what that is? Grace gifts. This is what he's telling us. He is telling us that when we use our spiritual gifts, it's putting grace on display. It's making grace visible to people. Now, when Paul lists his spiritual gifts, he leaves two of them out when he lists the Corinthians. Mercy and generosity. Do you think, opinion, right, okay, it's a rabbit trail of opinion here. Do you think it's possible Paul left those two out because he didn't want the Corinthians saying, we shouldn't have to give to the Judeans because I don't have that spiritual gift? I think it's every possibility. Because he wants the whole church burdened about it. And so what he is telling us is spiritual gifts are grace ministry. What grace? It's God's undeserved kindness on display. And so then when we have generosity, when we have this act of grace, he's telling us it's, it's an act of ministry that makes God visible. How does that work? Tomorrow, tomorrow marks seven months since my wife was diagnosed with cancer. Tomorrow. Seven months, it's felt like two or like seven years, depending on the day. In these seven months, we have been recipients of generosity like never before in our lives. Now, to be very clear, lots of people have been generous to us before the last seven months, but nothing like the last seven months. The nature of the trial, the intensity, the timing have just brought a unique season of generosity for our family. From meals, to gift cards, to a family photo session, to books that just show up in the mail, to blankets. We got, we got so many cozy blankets in our living room right now. Rides, pickups and drop-offs for our kids, 
gas cards, money to pay for meals and medical expenses. It has been absolutely incredible. And so I want you to know three specific ways generosity puts God on display. First of all, it shouts, God really cares. There is a difference between laying in your bed in need, crying out to God and praying, and saying, God, I know you care. But in your heart, it doesn't feel like it. And so you're walking by faith and not sight. And what I'm telling you that Paul is saying the ministry of grace does, it's our Heavenly Father saying, I'm glad you walk by faith and not sight, but I am not willing for you to go through this completely blind. And I want you to physically, tangibly see that I care. And I'm going to do that. Yeah, he could do it miraculously. But I am going to primarily do that through other Christians toward you. That's what I'm going to do. And so suddenly God's grace ministry and generosity through others puts his care on display. There are times that things have shown up, generosity has shown up to meet needs before we even knew the need existed. Before I ever knew it was going to happen, it showed up. Now, I just want to be clear. You pay me, and I, like, I'm clothed, I drive, like, I don't, we're certainly not Judean needy. Before I went in the hospital, somebody, a believer, sent me funds with a note, just waiting in the hospital to pay for food. I don't know what you, I'm not into hospital food. You've been in the hospital, trust me, you don't want that food. Mashed potatoes, a little bit like spackling compound, Right? What I didn't know is being in the hospital, I'm supposed to leave it too. My wife really didn't want me to leave it too, COVID restrictions. So Steve is going to play sly guy, and I'm going to hide out in her hospital room until somebody makes me go home. And I can be sweet when I want to be, right? But what I don't want to do, and if I leave the hospital at like 5 to go out and try to get some food, they're not going to let me back in. And God knew there would be the need before I ever knew there was the need to just sit there and just order it right in the hospital. That's one tiny example that when somebody is generous, it shouts God's care to you before you even knew the need existed. Can I just ask you a tough, convicting question? When was the last time God's Spirit prompted you to write a text or a note or make a phone call or send a gift card to somebody or reach out and just bless them? Man, when was the last time you, that happened and you didn't do it? And I know that's a hard question. But I'm going to put it this way, right? When you made that decision, according to this text, this is what you actually said. You weren't saying, I don't, I don't have time, or that's outside of my schedule, or I'll get to that later, and then you forgot about it. This is what you actually said. I'm okay with them bumping around blind in the hotel room a little longer. I'm okay with them not seeing God's grace on display. 
it shows that God cares. It's not about your care. It's about God's care. It shows that God is creative. Generosity that, that we've experienced has just taught us the creativity of God. And I'm saying this because so much of this applies to you folks and your generosity. I think I live in a generous church. I just don't know how His Spirit might be pricking you right now about generosity toward others. And so I, we got one package from, from, from family that believes, and it had funny DVDs in it. Like Tim, a Tim Hawkins DVD and then some other movie DVD. And, and we were just like, okay. And then guess what? It just was such a kind gift from God to just sit and laugh as a family at one point. That wasn't me. Like, there was no email request, hey, could you do this? That was the spirit prompting someone. Like I said, a family photo session, gas cards, flowers, crafts for the kids, eased pressure, created laughs when we had cried enough and we needed to be distracted in a healthy way. I'm just telling you this because some, of, some people are doing a much better job just creatively coming up, so I want you to know ways that have been a blessing so maybe you can bless some other people. Go bless some other people. It told us that God is near to the hurting. When people just show up, they sacrifice their time, their money, and their energy to care for us. He's telling us that generosity puts grace on display to hurting people. I love this adjusted quote. It's not original with me. The thorns of our lives pin back the curtain that seems to veil the kindness of God. What he's telling us is that when that room is dark and we're just bumping in and what we've thought we've created in our mind just doesn't match that sometimes the thorns of life and exposure of our neediness pulls it back and it opens the curtains for God to show his kindness and he wants to do that through you to hurting people when the needy of our world And the neediness of other Christians around the world becomes a political discussion. We've forgotten grace. When we assume that the neediness of others is God's judgment, we've forgotten grace. When we assume that my wealth is for my consumption, we've forgotten grace. When we believe someone else can do it, We've robbed ourselves of the joy of the ministry of grace. God intends for the faith of the saint to become sight. Yes, fully one day in glory, our faith will be made sight. No doubt, obviously. But until then, he is not content to let one another stumble blindly, trapped in our room of hurt. He sends generous ministry to the hurting to put his grace on display. He turns on the lights in our darkness. He whispers, he shouts, and he reminds us of his kindness. Now, how on earth could the Corinthians not embrace generous ministry? How could our own hearts not be stirred to this ministry of grace? Generosity puts God's grace on display to the hurting. I wonder what it was like when Paul showed up in Jerusalem with this purse of money and said, go buy food and clothes and shelter. And they said, what? And, and you know, you know when he said this is from the Macedonians. You know they were grateful to the Macedonians. But do you think for one second they didn't know the real source? 
how is God at work in you so that he might be at work through you 